Well, in a moment, we're going to bring up the graduates and the missionaries. And on the itinerary, you'll don't have, it says, John Martin, work. Jeremy Haskins, send. So this is all going to make sense in a minute. One day, I was sitting at work about 10 years ago, and I leaned back and I stared at the wall and asked myself, what am I doing with my life? Because it wasn't just a bad day at work, it was a bad year. And the thing is, prior to that, I had worked several years in full-time Christian ministry. To me, that was the brass ring. That was the ultimate. I felt like I was a man on a mission from God. I believed in what I did. I poured my heart and soul into everything. I could not stop working. And I loved what I did. I believed I was advancing the kingdom of God. I was a soldier on the front lines for his kingdom. And what else was there? And now, I was sitting at a desk in my family's animal clinic 10 years ago. And I was working on delinquent accounts. And I felt like God had just taken me out into the game and put me on the bench which is something I was very used to in high school athletics. <laughs> still, it was disappointing when God does it to you. And I realized, learned, I learned later, I had an unconscious ranking in my head of jobs a follower of Christ could do. And at the top was foreign missionary. Man, they went to the ends of the earth, and I still look to them as the heroes of the faith. But I had this ranking system that wasn't quite so spiritual. At the top was the foreign missionary, and that's to be vocational minister full-time. That was me. Uh, then it was bivocational minister, still respectable. And then a little bit further down the list were parachurch ministry folks. Sorry, Jason, I know that's, this is wrong now, but they were just not quite there. And on down my, my ranking of jobs that Christians could do, there is the charitable organizations. That was good. That would honor God. Then even completely outside of ministry, you could still please the Lord and have a, a, an, an honorable occupation in the helping professions like medical professionals, teachers, counselors. And then there were this category in my head. I would never have said this, and I don't know where I learned this, but it was just other, other jobs that you could do. And those jobs would be the jobs that you did just kind of to make a living. Or worse, build your own kingdom. And if you want to serve the Lord in those jobs, you got to wait till you get off work. And as the paperwork guy in my family's animal clinic, that's where I now ranked myself, other. And uh, I was making a living full-time and serving the Lord on the side. And I want to give you an example of how, of how bad it was. And this is embarrassing for me, but it'll help you to see uh, the point I'm trying to make, I hope. One time at an all-hands meeting, I mean, we get all the staff together. Everybody's in the room, and we're trying to you know, get, get uh, better at what we're doing. A girl decides that that's a good time for her to quit her job, announce it to everyone, and then invite people to come with her. And if that sounds familiar to you, that's exactly what happened in the movie Jerry Maguire, which I think she had seen recently. And that really happened. I was just like, is this happening? Yep, it was, right there. 
Uh, once a vet clinic broker, a type of a consultant kind of guy, once asked me if we were in the black. And as the bookkeeper and financial manager of a corporation, that's a question I should know the answer to. Not only did I not know the answer, I did not even know what in the black means. Um, I remember I, was, I took pride, though, in my bookkeeping. I thought, I'm going to be 100% ethical and honest. I will never fudge the numbers. I'm going to turn in, this into the CPA, and he's going to be amazed at how honest and ethical I was. And in his words, my bookkeeping was, quote, a mess. I mean, we were paying this guy, and he told me my bookkeeping was a mess. And if that, you know, uh, doesn't sound bad enough, once a college student, we had a lot of college students, one girl wanted to interview me because she was taking a business course, and she was told, instructed to interview someone who, who was in business management about what inspired them and what got them to where they are today. And she wanted to interview me. And in the spirit of being honest and always telling the truth, when she asked me, how did you get in the position you are today? I took a deep breath and looked at her and said, basically because of my last name. Not very inspiring to her or to me. And it's not that I wasn't trying. I had been for years a youth minister, so I thought I'll just spend a lot of time counseling people. So they come in and they had a problem, and I would say, sit down, I would be a good listener, and I was good at being nice to everyone. I just wasn't good at my job. And one day it would occur to me, it just, it just kind of hit me, if I was better at my job, some people's lives would be better. I, I could actually benefit some people, and I'd have an impact, not just like on the company's profits, but actually on people's lives, like the clients, the people we owe money to, the people that worked with me. And it began, it began to dawn on me, if I could just do things better, like scheduling and billing and recognition, staff recognition, business reporting, leadership, compensation models, if I could do some of those things with some skill, then people would be better off. And so I realized I was really honest. I was just incompetent. And so I knew I had to get better, not just nicer, not just more compassionate. So I had to read some books, some books like on how to create and understand financial statements, how to lead a team toward a common purpose, right? A bunch of business books, a bunch of, of secular, uninspiring, unspiritual books, not the kind of books I was used to reading. And one day, Pastor Jeremy said, John, I want you to go to this conference in New York. Oh, I was like, honored you know and I said absolutely I'll go it was about faith and work well, not faith at work and as I was there sitting and listening a, a switch flipped in my in my head a light clicked on my eyes were open and I suddenly saw at this conference God wasn't waiting for me to get off work so I could serve him he was waiting for me to serve him through my work and I saw passages in Scripture in a different light, things I had never seen before, many passages from the Old Testament to the New Testament about how God cared about work that we call secular, as if he doesn't care with what 90% of us do with 90% of our waking hours. And I read in, in, in Daniel chapter 6, Verses 1 through 5, it says, this is Daniel, remember, an exile, a prisoner of war, in a sense, 
a follower of God in a hostile country. And it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and the satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps who sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. I read things like that and I saw competency at work is a witness for God. And his purpose for putting me where he put me was to be his witness. You know, sometimes believers will we'll kind of let ourselves off the hook about really being engaged at work or doing good work or having a sense of purpose at work because our boss or company might be ungodly. Daniel worked for a pagan polytheistic king. A few of us have been in that situation. His job description was to make sure the pagan polytheistic king suffered no loss. Can you do that for your company or organization? He was so good at his job. For working for the enemy, he was about to be promoted to the highest level in the kingdom, which God used for his purposes. Sometimes as believers, we can kind of excuse ourselves from being really fully engaged and on board and aligned with the boss's dream or vision because there's a toxic work environment. Can you imagine? Daniel's coworkers wanted him dead. Now, maybe that's true of you as well. <laughs> But hopefully, no one is actually having a meeting about how they're going to get it done. <laughs> if so, you should change professions. This was happening. Can you imagine? At work, there were people having secret meetings to investigate everything you did. Every I you dotted, every T you crossed to find one thing, one place where you kind of cheated a little bit, one, one place where you broke the policy, you used company resources for personal use, some, some way that you fudged a little bit, you, you cheated, you, you, you took a shortcut, or just made a mistake, just out of your own lack of experience or training. Can you imagine what they'd find? I know what they would have found in my case. So what if there was nothing to find? What if they found out that the only reason you were so competent at your work is because you were so devoted to the one true king? And you know the story about Daniel. It involves lions. You can re remember the rest, I'm sure. Daniel had a mission from God. He had a calling on his life. That word is used of more than just prophets and priests and pastors and missionaries. 1 Corinthians 7. He had a calling in his life, and he was working for a government hostile toward his religious convictions. And even though he was not a prophet, God used him to do the work. And on a job, he, the, the job he found himself in, not the job he chose. And he did it with such a competence that God used him in a powerful way. So I realized being a follower of Christ at your job or business isn't just, it isn't just about figuring out how can I make my company more charitable. 
It's not only about having a Bible study before work. It's not only about getting off work more so you can volunteer more. All those are good things. All believers should be striving for those things. But your witness for Christ is in the work itself. It hit me that if you want to honor God with with 80% of your waking hours, then use the gifts he's given you to love your neighbor as yourself in his name with your excellence at work. And do it at your full-time job through the ministry of competence. If most of my waking hours, it dawned on me, were spent at work and my life belongs to him, then I had to do more than give him 10% of my paycheck. He gets 100% of me. I had to do more than volunteer on the weekends. I had to, in a sense, suit up for the kingdom on Monday morning when I showed up at work. I had to equip myself. I had to study. I had to get better. I had to cut out reading news and social media and start reading books that are going to help me to do my job better because my best wasn't good enough. I had to get better. I had to stretch and improve and grow, grow like it mattered, like I was doing something that mattered. And there were people that needed me to grow, to be better at my job. I realized I didn't know, I will never know where God might put me someday. I just knew where I was today. And that's where I needed to get to work. There was a job to do. And I decided I was going to do it with all the zeal and energy of a foreign missionary working for God himself because I was working for God himself. If you are a believer, you are going to work for the God of the universe at your job. So I read him once about a missionary. He was on a plane, and someone asked him, what kind of work do you do? He said, I work for a Middle Eastern king. And I would, I would never say that. It's a little slick, but I like that. I, I wanted to think that. And I, but if you had asked me 10 years ago about my work, I would have said something about making a living, paying the bills, saving for retirement. And I knew that's not what God put me to work for. God did not send me out to work to make a living or to save for retirement or worse, build a kingdom for myself. God had a mission for me to build his kingdom, to fold my story into his story and to make my work part of his work. And so when I realized that everything I own belongs to God, the skill, the strength, The company I work for belongs to God. The time and the resources of that company belong to God. The people working in that company belong to God. They are in his image. And he said, love them like you love yourself. I had to do something different. He has entrusted me with this small little thing, this small little part of his kingdom that that folds into his, his grand plan. And I had a short time that he said, You're the manager of this for a a breath, for a moment. Now do something. So I went to work. And I realized all believers, for all of us, our daily work, it's an act of worship because he called us and equipped us to do it, and we honor him by doing it well. So when I saw God's calling in my life, I saw this as my, my calling in my life, and my effort as a means to honor him, things changed. That business started to... To thrive. And I saw the people in it 
starting to thrive. And they knew we were believers. And they saw us striving to take care, not just of the business, but them. And I prayed different about the business. And I saw things starting to come together that I knew were totally beyond my control. Things started to happen that I, was, I would not even have dared to pray for in that company. Things that I knew I couldn't accomplish. And I started blatantly telling people, if this business breaks every record in profit and growth, but doesn't lead to the flourishing of the people in it, then it is a failure. And then I worked and I prayed to make that happen. About two weeks ago, I had a meeting in that same office, the office where I looked across the room and asked myself, what was I doing with my life? And I was talking to an employee and having a difficult conversation, now honestly. But she was telling me, she said, I've worked a lot of jobs and a lot of positions. She's older than me. And she said, even in the difficult conversation, she said, this place has the best culture of any place I have ever worked. And we got a long way to go, but that, that didn't happen by accident. I've heard that a lot in the last few months. That happened out of a desire to honor God by loving our neighbor with competent work because I knew that was God's purpose for our company. So God is in no way obligated to our success, but we are obligated to his glory. It's what we were made for. And when we do our work for that purpose, we feel his pleasure, and that will get you up in the morning. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for work. Thank you for giving us purpose. God, let all of us in here be a witness for you in our work, and, and may many people, because of that, say, you are the one true God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you take out the Word of God and turn to Psalm 127, uh, I'm so thankful for John's words uh, because 95% of us, uh, we will work uh, in situations just like John described. Uh, and as we talk about sending students out, sending out missionaries, that doesn't happen if most of us don't go to work. Uh, and so we have to have folks who love our jobs for the flourishing of others. And John Martin has so much wisdom uh, in that area. I would encourage uh, some of you students uh, to seek him out uh, and to just glean from his wisdom in that way. Uh, but we, we do want to understand uh, as we talk about missions, as we talk about sending, uh, that these things go hand in hand. We are a church. Uh, many of us are going to jobs for the glory of the kingdom there. We are witnessing the gospel there. And that bubbles up and that overflows to us sending out folks around the world. And uh, we want to see how those things go together. And so John has talked about work. Uh, and now I'm going to talk about sending from Psalm 127. Uh, I'm going to read verses 3 through uh, 5 as we begin our time together. Uh, the sermon will be a little bit short. I see some of you looking at your watch saying, wow, 45 minutes from now. Um, it's going to be a little bit shorter, hopefully. So stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. 
He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Oh God, we speak with our enemies in the gate today. Sin and death stand before us. They, they are ravaging the world that we live in. And yet we are not ashamed because we are a church whose quiver is full. And God, we long to send out these arrows. We long to, to pierce the darkness with the gospel, whether it be down the street or across the ocean. God, we, we pray that you would give us the, the courage and the boldness and the strength and the wisdom to be a church that lets go more than we hoard to ourselves, Because the kingdom is worth it. And we will be healthy and we will flourish when we are willing to sin. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Would you rather go to a church without any kids? This is the response that I've given Kay Fusen to anyone who complains about children ministry anymore. Uh, on a Sunday morning, uh, we, we have some interaction in the back. We send kids over to Excel and they come back and right now we're looking for more space. We're trying to figure that out. It is a constant problem here. And I just told Kay last week, someone said something about the noise, something, somebody said something about the space, and, and, and maybe at a point of frustration, I said, Kay, here's what I want you to say. And you can say, quote Pastor Jeremy, uh, when you respond in this way, the next complaint you get, look them in the eye and say, would you rather go to a church without any kids and just walk away? <laughs> so you know what's coming. The next time you complain about the noise in the back. I've, that is me. She is speaking on my behalf. Well, last Sunday morning, uh, I was in a conversation with several people throughout our uh, church about our college summer missionaries. We have so many students who are going to so many places this summer. And as a church, we want to help them as much as we can. We talk about college mobilization. We talk about sending students around the world. And then they come to us and say, okay, I need some money to do that. And it, it, those can be frustrating conversations and require a lot of wisdom. And, and, and I was trying to figure out, John, I was talking to John Martin, I was thinking, John, how, do we, how are we going to do this? this? How is this going to happen? We, we want to help all of them as much as we can. And, and he noticed in my tone just a little frustration. And so he used my same sentiment to Kay in referring to college students to me. And he looked at me and said, would you rather go to a church without any college students? Because you're, you're kind of borderlining complaining at this point. Would, would you rather go to a, stu, a, a church where we don't have those problems? And, and, and biblically, we see throughout the Bible that children, youth, the next generation is never to be seen as a problem. Never to be seen as a problem, but a blessing. And, and not just a we are the world blessing. That there's hope for the future. Some generic hope because we have children. No, a missional blessing. God gives us children. God creates youth in the context of a church for the sake of missions. It is a missional blessing. And we see that very clearly in Psalm 127. Uh, the, the psalmist 
tells the people of God in this psalm that God is creating the nation. He is building Israel. In verse 1, we see, unless the Lord builds the house, God, this covenant-keeping God of Israel, He has said to Israel, My name is at stake in everything I do for you. I'm going to make you promises, and then I'm going to keep those promises so everybody stands and says, wow, your God is awesome. And so I'm going to create a nation in you. I'm going to give you many people. You're going to, you're going to inherit land, and you're going to exist as a testimony of my glory. I'm going to build you up like a house that everyone is amazed by. And the psalmist says, unless the Lord is doing this, that you labor in vain. You can't do this yourself. And unless the Lord watches over the city, unless the Lord watches over Israel, the watchman stays awake in vain. God is building you up. He's, he's taking care of your legacy, your history, and you can't protect yourself. You can't provide security for yourself. You labor in vain. You, you watch in vain unless the Lord is doing it. He is doing everything He said He would. He will take care of you. He will provide security for you. And in verse 2, in vain. You rise up early and, and go, go late to rest, meaning you get up early and then, then you stay up late because you think you're providing all of these things yourself. You think you're keeping yourself safe. You think you're providing yourself security. No, the Lord is the only one who can do this. And, and so you're losing sleep, worrying about your security, when at the end of the day, it is the Lord's responsibility. And He says, eating the bread of anxious toil. You work out of fear. You think you have some control over it to the nation of Israel. No, God is doing this. And notice these beautiful words at the end of verse 2. For He gives His beloved sleep. Sleep. That's a glorious thing, right? You can lay your head down at night and rest knowing God is sovereign and He is in control. And to the nation of Israel, you can go to bed at night. Because God has established you and He has provided for you and He will take care of you. You're not in control. And this is the same promise, these two verses, the same promise is given to the church. The Lord Jesus stands before us and He says, I will build my church. This house, this city, this kingdom called the church, Jesus says to us, you are my beloved. I've set my love upon you. You are my bride, the church, and I will build my church. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Jesus says, I will do it so you can go to bed at night and you can rest. God's promises in Christ are going to be fulfilled. He's proven it by dying for our sins on the cross. He has been raised from the dead and everything he says from Genesis to Revelation will happen. So go to bed at night and get some sleep. Trust we can't do this. As a church, our strategy, our vision, things we put together that we think are wise in reaching this city and the nations, at the end of the day, it is the Lord who is building the church and not us. And so we rest in that. He gives His beloved, Ashland Church, sleep. And as a pastor, I've got to learn that. I've got to get a little more sleep. It's Jesus who's building the church. And notice verse 3. What is the sign to Israel that the Lord is doing what he said? That the Lord will continue this legacy and not you. Behold, children are a heritage, a legacy. He says, as you worry about what's going to happen to you as a nation, 
you look over at that crib, as you fret, is God going to take care of us? You look out in your yard at those kids playing. God's bringing about life to the nation of Israel. Notice he says, the fruit of the womb. And, and, and here, Israel, they would have noticed that, that the womb, having children, was a miraculous thing. They, they couldn't do that themselves. We have a lot of medical technology. We begin to think, I'm doing that, we're doing that, we control that process. We create it and we can stamp it out if we want to. No! Life in the womb is a miraculous, nearly supernatural thing that God produces. And he says, you want to know I'm taking care of you? Look at, at children teeming in the nation. But notice they're not just to resonate on you. Notice they are like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Children are to be seen as a weapon in the hand of God that will snuff out the enemies of God for generation after generation. And notice, blessed is the man who, who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with the enemies at his gate. Israel, you want to know how your enemies will never prevail against you? God is providing life in the nation. He's continuing to pass on your promises to the next generation, to the next generation. And we see that unfold in their history, even all the way back to Genesis 1. Sin and death enter the world. And God says, life and bringing life into the world is going to be very difficult and painful. But then Genesis 4, a baby squalls out. And there's the reminder, God's doing what He said. Even though we live in a world where sin and death is really real, we look at the labor and delivery department and say, yeah, but God's still moving in the world. He's still bringing forth life. And for Israel, time and time again, they were overtaken by their enemies. They were even taken out of their land and enslaved in other lands. And how did they know God would fulfill their promise, His promises? Because they had children who believed the promises and continued to trust God. And as long as when they were in the land, their children believed the promises that their parents passed on to them and they held tightly to them and they obeyed the Lord, they stayed in the land secure. That's why he describes children here almost as a weapon against your enemies. You continue to pass on the law. You continue to pass on the stories. You continue to call your children to hope in God. And it's like you have a weapon in your hand throughout the end of the ages and God is declaring to you, I will fulfill my promise. Look at the life I'm bringing into the world. And so even as a church here today, we live in a world cursed with sin and death. And we could list the ways in which even our culture in America is decaying. And we're losing a sense of what right and wrong and morality and values and the tendency is for us to fret. What's going to happen to my political party? Oh my word, what's going to happen? And, and God says, repent and go to sleep. Because guess what? You have children making noise back there. The hope for America is beyond those walls. Learning the gospel right now. Being taught about Jesus right now. Why are you so anxious? 
Why are you so fretful? Pass on the gospel, and you have a weapon to the end of the ages. And that's what he tells Israel here. He says, don't be scared. You can stand before the gates of hell. You can stand before your enemies, sin, death, Pharaoh's, Herod's, Planned Parenthood, Rome, Islam. You can stand before them and say, look, God's still doing what he said. He's bringing forth life and he's giving us children and we're teaching them the gospel. And guess what we're going to do with them? Like arrows in the hand of the warrior. We're going to send them around the world with the gospel. But notice some things here. First of all, children are described here in this psalm as weapons of warfare. It's interesting. Arrows in the hand of a warrior. Notice that the description of children as blessing doesn't resonate on us. The, the blessing of children is never to resonate on us. It is to, God gives us children to tell them of the faithfulness of God, to spread the faithfulness of God. We see that in Genesis 1, that, that we are to leave father and mother, we are to create our own families, and continue to stamp the world with the image of God. That, that is the first mandate that God gives man to be fruitful and multiply, and to fill the earth with the glory of God. And so children are never to resonate on us. The blessing is never to stay with us. It's always to spread the glory of God. And we even see that as a church and as families in a church when we think about the Great Commission. God gives us children not just to create little idols who are stamped with our hopes and dreams. He gives us children for the purpose of the Great Commission. The, the same way children were to, to, to be sent out from homes to spread the glory of God in the world in Genesis. In the Great Commission, we have children to send them out to live out the Great Commission, whether it's down the road or across the, across the globe. They are to spread this glory of God around the world. It's not to resonate on us. Notice they are described with arrows. Arrows, they are just placed above your mantle and see how pretty they are. This one's awesome. And, and to bring people in, look at my arrows. They're awesome. Taking pictures of my arrows, posting them on Facebook. Like, 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 like. Look at this award they got. Look at this they did on the baseball field. Look at this. Look at this. They can play the flute. Look at all the things they can do. It's not just about us. It's to send them out. Send them out around the world with the gospel. And so that makes a difference how we, not just parent, but how we organize children's ministry around here. How we think about youth around here. How we think about what we call student mobilization. The Great Commission has to drive your parenting. And there's some really good practical implications for that. If you teach your kids, you're not always going to be here. If you teach your kids, I'm not always going to be there for you. You may live far, far away from me. Uh, you're going to, they're going to take ownership over things, and you're not going to have to do everything for them. And you can go sip that coffee on the couch as they wash dishes. I'm preparing you for the mission field. Do your own laundry. I'm preparing you for Zimbabwe. That's great. 
but it should shape the way that we parent. We should understand that's why God gave them to us. So parents, what kind of life do you value for your children? A safe life or a sacrificial life? Do you tell them, you know, let's hold off on the missionary thing because you, you're so gifted and you're so special. <laughs> Why would you go live in a hut in Africa? Why would you move to another city? You have all these gifts and abilities. Well, if the Great Commission drives the way you think about your kids, you say, you're so gifted. You have all these skills and talents. Why would you not use them for Jesus? What's the most important thing in your life? And so we shape the way we think about our parenting with the Great Commission. And we shape the way we think about our life here and now with them in light of the Great Commission. The ball field is about mission. Band camp is about mission. The classroom is about mission. And we have to teach them that. The score, the grades. It's not about you. God has placed us in this city right now as missionaries. And the way we carry ourselves at work, the way we carry ourselves in the community, the way we carry ourselves at Lake Reba, the way we carry ourselves all around, we are missionaries here. Isn't this exciting? Isn't this great? We first moved to Richmond. My kids were the only kids in the, in the children's area. And they came from a church with hundreds of kids. And they show up here, and they're the only kids. The Haskins Six Children's Ministry. It's what it was. I'm glad I had six. It worked out good. People came and thought, wow, your children's ministry is teeming. And it was all our kids. <laughs> and they would say, I miss my friends. And I would say, we're missionaries. And they said, yeah, it's not all. <laughs> they were like, Yes. And you know what? From that point on, when we would say we had 30 kids, we had 60, we had 100, we had 350 at VBS, they would go, yes, that's awesome. Why? That's just the way they viewed it. And you have to view every area in your life that way. God has placed us here for the glory of God. How you use your resources, who you invite into your home, do your, do your children see you as missionaries inviting people not like them into your home? Because it'll make all the sense in the world for them to go to places of, with people not like them because they'd say, Mom and Dad invited those kind of people to our house every week. Well, okay, what's the big deal? We just live a few states away. We, just, we live in another country. I know, I met someone from Richmond who is from uh, Zimbabwe because my parents invited them in our house. That, that's the way you got to think about it. But today's student mobilization, i got to move on. <laughs> it shapes the way we think about college ministry, too. That, that vision, we don't, we don't just want college students here so we can Instagram pictures and say, look how cool and hip we are. We're the latest, greatest college church in Richmond. Look, look how pretty these college students are. Their hands raised on Sunday. Look, look it's, it's not about us. No, we want you to come here so we can get rid of you. <laughs> we want you to come here so we can send you out. It, it's the same philosophy here. 
We don't care if people say, look how cool and hip and vibrant their college ministry is. People are going to make fun of our college students at times. We say, they're weirdos. They're making decisions with their family and their life to do things that why would they do that? That makes no sense. Their parents are going to get upset with us at times. And some of you are making stupid decisions. You're making decisions because you love Jesus so much and you can't just, you can't figure it out. You're like, I got to go save the world right now. I'm dropping out of college and I'm going to the mission field right now. I'm dropping out of college and I'm adopting uh, 10 orphans next week right now. That's the way some of you are thinking and we got to say, hold on, hold on, hold on. But it's like a football coach I had who said, I would rather say woe than go. So you make, you start coming up with all those crazy ideas for Jesus and we'll say, okay, hold on just a little bit. We'll pull you back where we need to. But we want you here so we can send you, whether it's down the street or across the globe. We want to we shape your life with the Great Commission. You know one of the reasons kids leave church when they get to college is because they have no vision for their life when it comes to church. Their youth ministry was full of gimmicks. It's full of gimmicks. And so they get to college and they're looking for youth ministry 2.0. And this isn't youth ministry 2.0. We don't even turn the lights off in here. We have birds flying around. This is not <laughs> youth ministry 2.0. It's not. This is a church. I'm asked all the time, what do you offer college students? The church. The church, we're the church. But you know why they drop out? Because they've been played games with their whole life, little gimmicks. And then people didn't take seriously what it meant, as John Martin described, to, to get a job. And they didn't understand how the, the gospel applied to their work. And we want to shape all of that here. But because we're all, as we say every Sunday, sent. And we want you to know that this isn't a gimmick and the gospel has everything to do with leaving it all for Jesus and also getting an engineering degree for Jesus. And, and, and maybe, maybe you decide, I'm not going to make a lot of money. we got people here who make a lot of money. And they will send you to die for the gospel. And maybe you decide, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not all on going out to, to die for Jesus. But I'll get an engineering degree and I'll send other people to die for Jesus. And maybe that's how it works. But it's all coalesced around this mission philosophy, this sending out philosophy. We want to say that this is about the glory of God and stamping the world with the glory of God. And I'm out of time. I could just do this forever. But I was told when we first came to Richmond this, pastor sat me down and said, I see y'all are really serious about getting college students to come to your church. Like, I see all these flyers, access. I want you to know, you can't build a church on college students. That's what he said. He said, they don't have a lot of money. They, they, they're only going to be there four years. And I said, First of all, we're not building the church. Jesus is. And if Jesus were here today, he would say, maybe, maybe you can't build a church on college students. 
But you can't build a church without them either. And Jesus would probably, I know Jesus would say, I'd rather not go to a church without any kids. Because he says, bring them to me. Bring more and more. And I think he would say today, I ain't going to a church without college students. Gifts, resources, life ahead of you. Oh, we, we have arrows in our hand today that we want to propel to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. Let's pray.